This podcast is part of the Podbelly Network. Please visit podbelly.com to see a complete listing of all of our other shows. It's about to be a fun ride. Follow along, watch as we slide. Paranormal just hit the lights. Goosebumps all through the night. Mixing just a little bit of twain. That girl sure can't do a thing. Together, hillbillies go insane. Laugh so hard it'll hurt your brain. Podcast you won't ever change. These two here, they got the recipe. Sat on back and listen in to some of our darkest mysteries, eh? Welcome to Hillbilly Horror Stories. And now here's your host. Jerry and Tracy Pauly, and their dog Ninja. Hey guys, welcome to episode 225 of Hibbly Horror Stories. I'm Jerry. Hey, oh. How are you just going to talk right on top of Sorry. me? Sorry. Like we haven't done this a thousand <laughs> times. I was excited, I guess. Sorry, Jerry. <laughs> All right. We're going to have some fun today. We got an extra long story since we didn't put out an original story last week and it was the Patreons. I, I did an extra long story this week for you. Awesome. All right. So first of all, we want to thank all of our military and civil servants all over the world, no matter which country you represent. Thanks to all of you guys, gals, dogs, anybody that participates, especially everybody on the front lines out there. You are remembered every week by us. You absolutely are. I don't know how to, I don't know how y'all doing it. I really don't. It seems like a never ending battle, but we love you guys and uh, thank you for keeping us safe. We appreciate you so much. Also, we want to remind everybody, especially as we approach the holiday time, that we know a lot of you out there are struggling. There's a combination of just the holidays in general, which are usually tough, and then you've got the COVID stuff and all kinds of other stuff going on. It's, you know, we see posts from all around the world, so we know everybody has the same kind of struggles. We just want to let everybody know that we're with you. We're in your corner. If you need us, reach out to us. Join the group if you haven't already. Um, there's a lot of people in there just really eager to help anybody in any part of the world at any time of the day. That's the beauty of it. It doesn't matter if you post two o'clock in the morning where you're at. Trust me, there are people up ready to lend some support. Yeah, no, no, it's amazing. It's really great. Um, if you would rather, um, rather, rather, which rather? one is it? Oh, if you'd rather, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Sorry, y'all. I know it. If you'd rather um, reach out to uh, somebody else, like the hotline is 800-273-8255. You can text them at 741-741, and I know that they will be there to help you as well. Absolutely. All right, Tracy, before we get into this episode, I I need to remember, because it's been a little later in the episodes, that we are brought to you by El Yucateco Hot Sauce. Mm Mm-hmm. We uh, had some book signings yesterday in Louisville and Lexington, and we had uh, proudly had all of our LU Cateco merchandise that we were giving away yep. on uh, at both locations, so a lot of people were eager about that. We had somebody tell us that whenever they go to El Nepal restaurant, they use the LU Cateco hot sauce there. Oh, so yeah. Oh, yeah. There were there was some LU Cateco talk out there yesterday, but if you're unfamiliar, they have seven different flavors, five of which are habanero-based. It is the number one habanero-based hot sauce in the United States. Number 10 out of all hot sauce in the United States. You can get yours at all, most of the major grocers. Target and uh, Walmart are two that we know that carry it. If your grocer doesn't, make them start carrying it. Or you can just go to lucateco.com and use our new code, Hillbilly Horror, all one word, that gets you 10% off anything in that store. So, That's awesome. And I'm going to suggest that when you go to lucateco.com, 
Facebook.com, even though it's not one of the habanero-based. They, they have two that's not. One of them is jalapeno-based. The other one is chipotle. And chipotle one's got kind of a smoky flavor. So I'm going to suggest, if you're not a true hot sauce type flavor and you want something that's got just a lot of flavor without all the extra hot, try the chipotle. It's mm-hmm. one of the less hot ones. And that smoky flavor makes it really good just to add into recipes like chili and stuff. So. Yes, very, very nice. All right, Tracy. Are you ready for this one? I'm ready. I literally should be ashamed of myself because years back, I'm talking years back, like 20 some years ago, when I was with my ex-wife, we used to always talk about going to Colonial Williamsburg. Mm -hmm. I mainly wanted to go there because of all the history and the hunted places and all this stuff. And it just never happened. For whatever reason, mainly because I didn't take vacations back then. I mean, I worked nonstop, and mm-hmm. we just never took times for vacation. I know I went 10 years straight without ever taking a single day of vacation. That's crazy. But that's just the way it was. Well, like I said, loved everything about the place, and I don't know what's happened over the years, but I have completely forgotten about Williamsburg. I mean, here we've been doing this show for 225 episodes, plus all these shorts and everything yeah. we've done, and not once have we done the town, a specific place, nothing from Williamsburg, which is in Virginia. And I just, I'm like, how in the world someplace that I desperately wanted to go has never even entered my mind. So I I thought, well, you know what? Today's the day. And, and let me tell you how this came about. When we were driving back from Bardstown last week, mm-hmm. there's a sign that says Willisburg, not Williamsburg, but Willisburg. And I saw that, and it made me think Williamsburg, which mm-hmm. we've got a Williamsburg, too. I don't know why that didn't do it before. <laughs> we've passed that a million times. But I thought, you know what? I forgot all about Williamsburg. So that's what we're going to do this week. So I immediately came home started doing some research. And now I want to point out that this is going to be confusing to some people. Um, but Williamsburg, there's Williamsburg, the city. And there's Colonial Williamsburg. There, it's like Colonial Williamsburg is a section of Williamsburg, mm-hmm. and it, we'll get into that a little more. But there are there is two different places that are within the same, and you'll see a little bit what I mean by that. That also, when you're talking about this part of the country, it's one of the oldest parts as far as English settlements. And I mean, just to tell you, just the area alone, you've got. Williamsburg, and then you've got Jamestown. Everybody's heard of Jamestown. It's mm-hmm. like the, the original settlement and all that stuff. Jamestown's only six miles from there. Oh, wow. And then you got Yorktown. How many people have heard about the Battle of, of Yorktown and all that stuff? It's 13 miles, and then uh, there's some other little cities within there. So I'm going to do some stories that are not just Williamsburg, but in that area, because it's all kind of, you know, it's like Atlinburg and Pigeon Forge. Mm-hmm. They get, kind of get all lumped together. So first of all, like I said, I want to point out the Colonial Williamsburg. If you're an outsider to the area, you may not know that when someone references Colonial Williamsburg, that's different than the city itself. Now, Colonial Williamsburg uh, is actually the world's largest outdoor museum. No kidding. Yes. It's made up of several hundred restored and recreated buildings from the 18th century when Williamsburg was actually the capital of Virginia. It sits on about 173 acres, so it's a pretty good size. It literally is like stepping back in a time when you go there. Employees wear all these costumes from back in the time. They even talk in colonial grammar. The city of Williamsburg 
was founded, the original, in 1699. So that shows there is definitely some of the oldest history in the United States mm-hmm. back there. Now, let me point out when I say that this is the world's largest outdoor museum, that's not a figuratively speaking or figure of speech. Yeah. It literally is a museum. You pay to go there. Oh, it's my like, gosh. It's like $30 a piece or something to go in to get to that part. But it's like you literally, everything in Colonial Williamsburg is as it was. How amazing is in that? In the late 1600s. Oh, my gosh. Why don't we, we need to go there. I, I've already talked, like I was talking to Sam Farrell. Farrell, he lives like 30 minutes from there. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we need to do that for sure. Yeah, we need to set up a show there. So oh, that would be awesome. Yeah, so I'm I'm working on it. As soon as the uh, virus allows us to really set something up. Okay. We'll work on it. Plenty of world's uh, leaders and heads of state and stuff like that have had conferences here, including all the U.S. presidents back in the day. Colonial Williamsburg was listed as a historical landmark all the way back in 1960. That's when it made it on there. So for 81 years, Williamsburg was the center of government in Virginia. And during the Revolutionary War, the government was moved to Richmond by the governor at the time, Thomas Jefferson, in 1780. This was about 55 miles away, but he felt like that it would be a little more centrally located and, mm-hmm. and more accessible to the rest of the uh, the counties and stuff that were a little further western in the state, but also less susceptible to British attacks. Because you got to remember, this was back during the... Uh, Revolutionary War. So he thought that just might be a little little more central location all the way around. Yeah, well, good thinking on his part. So let's get into some of the paranormal stuff. Let's start with a story from Williamsburg. I told you we're going to bounce around to a couple of the cities. Since Williamsburg was the capital, anyone that was accused of committing a felony had to be tried there in that city. So trust me, there weren't very many plea deals back in the day. If oh, you were gosh, guilty, sure you were not. guilty, and there wasn't yeah. a whole lot of arguing your case. So if you were convicted of murder, arson, forgery, piracy, or even horse stealing, you were probably going to be hanged. Needless to say, there were several hangings that took place there in Williamsburg. Hanging was considered a more humane punishment, believe it or not, than imprisonment back then. Oh my God. Well, that says a lot. Keeping someone in jail was considered to be very cruel. Why, you ask? I did. I could sense it in your eyes. Thank you. In all honesty, consider the conditions that were in the jails in the 1700s. They're probably right, and we're going to cover some of those. The cells were very small and cramped. There was no heat. Virginia gets cold in the wintertime. Mm Mm-hmm. They had small barred windows. They had no glass. So the prisoners were not protected from the elements at all. When it was 100 degrees outside, they were, you know, probably way more than 100 degrees because of being inside. Mm -hmm. You know, when it was freezing cold outside, they were freezing. If it was raining, it was coming in the window. If it was snowing, it was probably coming in the window. They slept on piles of straw. Now, these straw bales or whatever they were, the however they stacked them up, they were full of insects. Oh, my gosh. What in the world? <laughs> Prisoners were often chained to the floor with heavy shackles. And they know this because eventually uh, when they came in and, and did some renovations on these places and, and dug some stuff up, excavated some stuff, they found some of this stuff. So they know that they were probably pretty much chained to the floor where they couldn't move at all. So even if the crime wasn't that bad, 
Like, well, it was the felony stuff. It was mainly, you know, okay. but, but you know, horse stealing back then was... Oh, well, that's a, a yeah, transportation. That, that was a major deal, you know, for whatever reason back there. So that was, that was you know, there, but it's mainly the big, the big crimes. Okay. So I don't, I don't think, but I mean, even stealing was probably, any, any theft was probably considered a crime back then. So, or as far as a, a, yeah. a, a heinous crime. Lice, roaches, rats, and mice would often come through the cells at will. Yeah, just hang me. <laughs> the smell was horrendous. So, yeah, death may actually have been a relief to some of these prisoners. So, if you were one of these prisoners that were convicted of a heinous crime, you would be staying there in jail until the wagon of death came to pick you up. Oh. <laughs> And it would come pick you up. It would take you up to the gallows. You would hear the death wagon coming way before you would see it because of the clacking of the wheels yes. and the creaking and, and all that. The condemned man would hear the wheels clacking, creaking as it rolled down Nicholson Street. So get this. When it did arrive, the prisoner would be loaded into the wagon. And guess what he sat on for the mile ride hey. up to Hangman's Road? Straw. His coffin. <gasps> knowing, Damn, they were not playing back then. Knowing that he was going to be in that coffin when it made its trip back. Oh. These were public hangings, so the prisoners arrived. It was like, you know, they were the guests of honor arriving at a birthday party. You know. <laughs> this people, is awful. People from all around the, the surrounding countryside would actually show up for these things. And... There would be all this cheering and stuff from the from the crowd that would greet the prisoner when the wagon of death arrived. So picture this. You're in this wagon. You already know what's getting ready to happen. I mean, you're thinking about that anyway. And as you start drawing close to the crowd at the gallows, you can hear them start cheering, knowing that they're cheering to watch you lose your life. That's then, messed up. And then you get there and you open the door and, I mean, it's just like a rock star or something walking out on stage. I mean, could you imagine what's no, going on I in can't. the prisoner's that is head? Wrong. The anxiety from the prisoner, just knowing that and hearing all that, must have been through the roof. I mean, I just, I probably just would have cried. Like, really? So there's no more gallows there today. They've been gone for obviously several decades, but you can still visit the land right on the outskirts of Williamsburg or where they used to be. The jail is actually one of the oldest buildings in Williamsburg. Back when it was in operation, it housed pirates, murderers, debtors. So there you go. There's, we had debtors in there too. Mm -hmm. Native Americans and runaway slaves. It was closed in 1780 back when they moved everything up to uh, Richmond. For well over 120 years, people living on Nicholson Street have had sightings of the wagon of death. They claimed to hear the sounds of the horse in the wagon during the early mornings pre-dawn hours because obviously this must have been when they took the prisoners yes uh -huh. was you know before it became light outside they'll hear these noises they'll run to their windows and there's nothing there in june of 1985 james doherty was staying at the coke garrett house which is also haunted we're not covering it today but it's a cool place he was sleeping in one of the rooms that actually faced nicholson street and he was awoken by the sound of a horse and a crack of a whip he heard this loud, gruff voice telling the horse to go faster. Now, 
he knew it was way too early for Colonial Williamsburg to be having their deals that they yeah. have out there, their performances and all that stuff. Uh, so he was a little eager to see, you know, why is there horses out on the street? <laughs> but he knew it was not his imagination either. So he gets up and uh, he goes out and he remembered the story of the, of the wagon of death. So he ran to the window and he was amazed that the street was completely empty. He was disappointed that he did not get to see the wagon of death, but at least he got to hear it. And that's kind of a common theme here. On a foggy morning of April 1992, there was a Colonial Williamsburg employee by the name of Donald Receiver. He had a similar experience. He was working in the carpenter's yard, which at the time was on Nicholson Street. He was sitting up some kind of a tool display in the shed where he had heard the clacking of the horse and uh, and the hooves and stuff coming down the, the street. Now, he was fairly used to hearing this because, you know, he worked right there in Colonial yes. Williamsburg. So he heard the animals and stuff going up and all the time. So he knew what it was. But it was a few minutes later he realized that, you know what, um, it's pretty early and I know there's not any horses out on the street. So he still didn't think much about it. He just kept continued on what he was doing. Then he heard the crack of a whip, similar to the other story. Now, Receiver was this huge animal lover, and he thought someone was abusing the horse. So this is what got his attention. It wasn't the fact of hearing the clack and all stuff. It was like, dude, why are you hitting this horse with a whip? Especially when he worked in Colonial Williamsburg, so he knew that wasn't something that went on. Oh. So he was kind of pissed off about it. And so he ran outside, and nobody was there. That's amazing how loud and strong that is, where people can actually hear that. Yep. And tourists that are staying up on Capitol Landing Road, which used to be Hangman's Road, have had experiences as well. Kitty Miller experienced the sound of a horse winning. That is the proper term, right? Yeah, winning, 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 I guess. Like like Charlie Sheen. Yeah, winning. Winning. So anyway, she heard the horse winning and the sound of a crowd cheering when she was sleeping at a nearby hotel. Now, she thought this was some kind of event going on outside. Mm-hmm. She, she couldn't believe that they were having some kind of an event so early in the morning while people were trying to sleep. Mm-hmm. So she was kind of pissed, and she gets up because she didn't sleep well the night before. She went to the window and said it was completely empty outside. And the sound of the cheering, you know, whatever was out there, just kind of faded away. So to this day, no one has actually seen the wagon of death but as you could tell, there have been several people over the years, several hundreds, as a matter of fact, to claim to hear the wagon wheels and the hoofs and, and the cracking of the whip. It's kind of scary anyway, but just to think, oh, my God, I hope they're not coming for me. You know what I'm saying? You probably <laughs> right. feel that in the back of your mind. All right, the next place we're going to talk about is the Peyton Randolph House. Now, this house was built in 1715 by John Randolph. Peyton was one of the most influential men in Virginia at the time. His father, John Randolph, was the first Virginian to be knighted for his work on behalf of England. If you remember back in this time, America had not won their independence yet, so we were still under English rule. Oh, So even gotcha. though people people were here, they were working. If they were a mayor of a city, they were still, you know, England was still their head of state, and they still answered to the mm-hmm. king at the time. I want to be a king. I don't think that's possible. Oh. I guess, yeah. I don't know. You said I could be anything I wanted to be. I lied. Oh. (laughs) So it's somewhat ironic that his son was actually one of the biggest supporters of the Patriots uh, 
to actually win the independence from England. So here you got a dad that's actually a knight for mm-hmm. all the work that he had done for England. And his son's like, you know what? I think I'm, kind of, I'm really going to pull the ultimate, tr- you know, <laughs> you know, the ultimate card of reversal of opinion, dad. Go against <laughs> you. He's, you talk about a rebel. Oh, yeah. So in 1766, Peyton was actually elected a Speaker of the House of the Burgess. And in 1774, was the first president of the Continental Congress. Nice. Unfortunately, Peyton died in 1775 of a stroke, so he never actually got to see America gain their independence. Oh, well, that sucks. The house itself has numerous outbuildings that resemble a small plantation. So even though it's not a plantation, uh, because plantations typically, you know, they're growing stuff uh-huh. out there too. Uh-huh. This house... Uh, an area, it has all the buildings that would resemble a plantation, but they're not growing anything there. So oh. it's just a huge residence. The military would actually stage demonstrations there and on the property, and it was so big that they enlisted 24 slaves on site just to run the household and help out on the many functions that the house hosted. So that's a lot of that is a lot. effort. Yes. When John Randolph, Peyton's dad, passed away in 1737, he left the house to his wife, Susanna, and upon her death, she left the house to her third son, Peyton. This home was absolutely gorgeous. It had these rare round-headed windows for the time. And it had this beautiful grand staircase as soon as you walk through. There was also an oak-paneled bedroom, which was super unusual for colonial times. Yeah, who's got paneling? Well, Are you talking the, about paneling? Well, not like paneling like, like in the 70s. Oh. We're talking about like real oak panel. Oh. Like the whole room was like... Actually, Ooh, that'd be, I thought that's beautiful. Yeah. I mean, when you think log cabins are typically like that, but yeah. not like this. You Ooh, know? sounds nice. All right. So in 1745, Peyton, who had inherited, you know, this house, married Elizabeth Harrison. She had also come from a very wealthy family. Betty, as she was better known, was a very privileged young lady, we'll say. And uh, she didn't care much for other people's misfortune. So, um, in other words, she was a bitch. Period. Oh. She didn't care about anybody else. Oh. She grew up very wealthy and very privileged, and she was spoiled, to say the least. And she just didn't care what anybody else went through. Well, that's terrible. Whatever. I'm sorry. I said bitch. I should have said biatch. <laughs> but you get the point. Yeah. Sorry, children. <clears throat> she apparently was very harsh to others, uh, especially the slaves on the plantation, but especially true... She was super harsh. And there you have Freddie's first official Meow. contribution to the show. <laughs> <laughs> but she was extremely harsh to her personal slave, Eve. Sorry, Freddie's killing me. He's so cute. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, Betty apparently ran the household with an iron fist. And she, she made Eve's life a living hell with her daily, uh, just basically... Fits and, and aggravation and yelling and screaming and all that. In 1775, the Virginia royal governor, Lord Dunmore, said that he would grant freedom to all slaves if they ran away and fought with the British Army. So Eve and eight other slaves chose to do so, even though that meant that Eve was going to have to leave her son behind. It's a little cloudy whether Eve was captured or whether she returned on her own to be with her son, but she was back with Betty five years later. Hmm. Interesting. She received a severe whipping as punishment, and shortly after, she decided to run away again. This time, though, she was captured about a year later. Now, I can't imagine what her penalty... 
uh, or punishment was for this time, considering what it was the last time. Um, and nobody really knows. But regardless, her worst punishment came when Betty Randolph died in 1782. You see, in Betty's will, she chose to have Eve sold because of her bad behavior. And to be sold was actually one of the most devastating things that could happen to a slave in the day. Uh, because for so many years, especially like Eve, she had been in the location. So she had family. She had friends. She she knew her role. Yeah. She knew everything that could happen. And when this happened, they would be ripped away from their family, not to mention that their condition with the, the new owner could actually be way more harsh than mm -hmm. what the situation was here. So when the new owner arrived, Eve put up quite a fight. She did not want to go. She screamed and cried as she was ripped from her son's arms. Oh, my goodness. Because of the fight that she put up, the new owner restrained her in a very painful way. She was laid face down over a horse. Uh, I guess I should say over the horse's back. Mm -hmm. And her wrists were tied to her ankles under the horse's belly. So think about that. She's, oh, my Lord. She's laying on the horse. Probably, my my guess is, the saddle, instead of sitting on the saddle, facing the horse, she was probably laid across the saddle. And then, so her arms reached the bottom of the horse, her legs reached, and then they tied it at the bottom. So, yeah, I would think that would be extremely painful. I hate that. People are so dang mean. So, at this point, Eve made a threat. She vowed vengeance on all who inhabited the Peyton Randolph house from that point on. I don't know what happened to Eve after this when she left mm -hmm. from the house because I couldn't find anything that said what had happened. I mean, I don't, I don't, I just have no clue. That is so sad. I do know that several people died suddenly or committed suicide within that house in the future years. Oh, so her curse worked. Probably. In the 1970s, the home was used as a lodge house, and the guests who uh, actually stayed there. They loved the fact that they actually got to spend a night in such an authentic colonial house, but few actually spent the entire night. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Over the years, numerous stories have been told about the dark spirits that dwell in that house. Howard Kidman said he stayed there in the fall of 1968. He said it was, you know, a nice night. He was resting comfortably, but then he was awoken by a peculiar feeling of someone tugging on his arm. So he assumed he was dreaming. He rolled back over, kind of went back to sleep. But guess what? He was not dreaming. Oh. <laughs> a little bit later, he was awoken by something violently shaking him. When his eyes kind of adjusted to the darkness, he could see that there was nobody there. He jumped out of bed, and he ran as fast as he possibly could. He left all of his belongings and did not return to get them. <laughs> so whatever he brought with him was now property of the, uh, the hotel or whatever the lodging house. There's another story from a Revolutionary War hero. So this one actually goes way back. Marquis de Lafayette, he stayed here on his return visit to Williamsburg in 1824. Now, he had written a letter to a friend that he felt honored to be able to stay in the Peyton Randolph house. But he said when he entered the foyer, he felt a hand on his shoulder. It nudged him as if it was trying to keep him from entering you know, the room. Mm-hmm. He said he quickly turned, but nobody was there. He said his night was not very restful either because the sounds of voices 
kept him awake for most of his stay. Throughout the years, several ghostly figures have been seen roaming the empty hallways. The home appears to be filled with spirits from all different types of walks of life and different time periods. So we may not know how many spirits are actually in the Peyton Randolph house, but we can probably assume that Eve is one of them. Oh, I'm sure she is. And I don't blame her. All right, so we're going to bounce from Williamsburg and go a couple miles down the road to Yorktown, where I'm going to combine two stories. Okay. In 1781, the Continental Army left New York and headed to Virginia. Now, that army was led by no other than George Washington. The man in charge of the English and the German forces at the time was Lord Cornwallis. Now, Cornwallis was a very cocky individual, and he was sure that his group would be able to have no problem at all taking over the American patriots because he felt like that, you know, they were just poorly trained, so it wouldn't, you know, they could just beat them without even trying. No. Oh. That was just his attitude. <laughs> that's, that's where he was. And Cornwallis would actually invade cities along the way, and he would make the most awesome house his residence because he felt like that that's what he deserved. So that's what he did here when he was in Yorktown. He chose the Nelson House. As the headquarters. I keep talking about all these places being haunted. The mm-hmm. Nelson House is also one that's haunted, but we don't, we'll talk about that for later. We're probably going to do it part two to Williamsburg because we're down the road. Okay. We'll talk about some of these other houses. Sounds like a lot going on. Yeah. But like like we said, Cornwallis was, thought that, you know, he could do no wrong. He was he was just the, the bee's knees, as the kids say. <laughs> oh, yeah. The kids <laughs> yeah. do say that. <laughs> but he showed really poor judgment here in making Yorktown his military base. Patriot forces surrounded his troop, and they bombarded them with artillery fire day and night. I mean, this was constant, non-stop. God, that would drive you crazy. Yeah. So the constant sound of like exploding cannonballs, uh, which really doesn't make sense <laughs> because <laughs> we know the cannonballs don't explode technically. But anyway. <laughs> Just thought of something else. I know. <laughs> Inside joke. But the, the, the constant sound of the cannonballs drove many of the soldiers to the point of insanity. The people of Yorktown suffered as well. They watched their beloved city get pretty much demolished. Many of the buildings destroyed there were more than 100 years old. Oh, my gosh. And in that's the 1700s, awful. for a building to be 100 years old, I mean, that, that oh, literally, Lord, yeah. I mean, they yeah. would have been the oldest buildings around today. So as the Continental Army's bombardment continued, the British troops retreated close to the river. They got, and they kept getting closer, and they kept getting closer. Well, eventually, they were backed up to the river. So what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. You know, you, and that's why they say that Cornwall You're going to live in a, a van? That, well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's why they said Cornwallis made a poor decision, because he picked a place where he allowed them to be backed up into... And that couldn't, you know. yeah. I, that was a bad decision. So all these these people that were living in these nice, comfortable houses, they had to get up and they had to leave them and, and go to the river shore. Then they would seek shelter, eventually, at a cave that was on the riverbank. Lord Cornwallis was one of the men that were in the cave. And he had made the mistake of trapping his own men (laughs) against the York River, like we already said. And not only that, now they're trapped in a cave. Hundreds of English troops. They need a new leader. Yeah, hundreds of English troops were so desperate they tried to escape by swimming in the river's turbulent waters. Then, as they were doing so, an unexpected storm came and thousands of British soldiers were actually swept downstream and drowned that day. Thousands. That is awful. Now, I mean, if they were swept down river, 
that could have worked for their plan to get out. But well, I apparently, don't it, I don't think their plan meant they were dead when they got. The well, no, I'm, I'm just saying it. it's a shame that that happened that way. Yeah. So Cornwallis realized that surrendering was his only option after the drowning of so many men and, you know, losing so many other men through artillery forces. So the English army left Yorktown in October of 1781, but the city would never recover. I mean, because they I mean, lost sure the, the whole the, the city was demolished pretty yeah. much. So. Since that time, though, there have been some haunting stories about the Cornwallis Cave, as it, is, as it is now known. Most of these stories were thought to be foolish by a young woman by the name of Dorothy Fuller. She didn't believe any of these stories, or ghosts at all, or anything supernatural, until the fall of 1953. So she was a native of Yorktown, so she'd heard all these legends. So one day she was out walking and just kind of wandering around the forest there, and she seen the, saw that a storm was brewing. A storm was a brewing. Yeah. So she decided to go ahead and head back to the house. Now, on her way back, it started to pour as she approached the cave. So she ducked in for a few minutes to wait it out. She was only a few feet in the entrance when she heard the sound of panicked voices that stopped her in her tracks. Which really makes no sense because she probably she was just standing there. So she really wasn't walking. You get what I'm saying. Mm. Don't I, get so literal. I did a poor job of writing this. Anyways. <laughs> so she hears all this. And she waits a few seconds because she's kind of spooked a little bit. And she builds up the nerve to actually walk back in the cave a little Ooh, bit and, and take a little bit of a look. I would just holler back there. Hey, y'all, anybody back there? There was nobody back there. But she's convinced now that Cornwallis Cave holds the horrified spirits from that battle from 1781. Now, I told you at the start of the story that I was going to combine two stories, Okay. Now, the Continental Army, which was doing all this bombardment led by George Washington, had a soldier that was really important to George Washington. This was his stepson, John Parker Custis. Now, he went by the name of Jackie back then. Now, he was the son of Martha Washington and her first husband, Daniel Parker Custis. Did you know that Martha Washington was married before George Washington? I did not know. So, Jackie's father died in 1757, and he left a huge inheritance to Martha and his son. More than a dollar? I'm pretty sure. Jackie lived in the lap of luxury, and he was a bit of a troublemaker. He Not really legal stuff, but he was constantly getting kicked out of school and mm-hmm. stuff like that. He just didn't take life very seriously. Everything he tried to do career-wise in life, he either failed or he quit at. So George loved him, though. He didn't care, and he respected the hell out of George, so he was like, you know what? I really want to impress George. What can I do? And George was always gone at this time, you know. So Jackie got married at a very young age. He mm-hmm. had four children. And him and his wife lived with Martha in Mount Vernon because George was always gone off to war or something. So they lived up there with her. Eventually, to make George proud, he thought, you know what? I'm going to join the Continental Army. This is a guy who had never done any physical labor. Yeah, not, what the heck is he thinking? he respected George so much he did that. So he went to Yorktown and fought alongside with George. Now, Jackie, like I said, had never done any of this physical labor and stuff. So this was a little harder for him than it was most of the people who had signed up. He struggled, not just physically, but mentally, because he was seeing people beside him have arms blown off from cannonballs, legs, amputations in the field, people dying, not just from the artillery, but from illnesses that were out there. 
Jackie himself became ill, mainly because the unusually wet autumn and the rancid food and the lack of sleep and sanitation. They called it Camp Fever. And they sent him to a plantation that was nearby the hill. But unfortunately, after several different attempts of him trying to get better and hurry up and get back to the battle, he just couldn't. And, you know, he ended up dying. And they were doing like bloodletting and purging and everything else on him to try to make him better. That's what they did back in the day. Mm -hmm. None of it worked. And he ended up dying at the age of 28 years old. Man, he should, I wonder if he... Never mind. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I mean, it's, uh, it's you know, admirable that he did that. Yes. But, you know, he just left all that good stuff and then he ended up dying. Legend says that Jackie Custis still roams the ancient grounds of Yorktown. Paul Brochure said that he came face to face with him while he was hiking one time. This was in 1998, and he was walking in that area where the Continental Army had their encampment, okay? Mm -hmm. He saw a man dressed in an old-fashioned nightshirt running through the dense underbrush. He was completely barefoot, and his ankles were bleeding heavily. So he shouted something, but he couldn't understand what he was saying. You know, the, the guy in the woods was, was shouting, shouting. Not, not Paul. So Paul kind of bent down so the man couldn't see him, and he just observed he said he watched as he ran all over the place with no apparent destination destination amount. He was just like haphazardly running. He said he eventually ran out of the sight. So Paul stood up and began walking again. He said as he got to the top of the knoll, the two almost collided. He said he came out of nowhere. He said his skin was so pale that it was almost blue. He had long, dirty blonde hair and intense blue eyes. He said even though they had almost collided, the figure never even took his eyes off of the horizon. So it was almost like Paul like he saw didn't him notice and was Paul. Spooked, but this figure didn't really see him. So he said all he did was run from hill to hill at the time he observed him. That's exhausting. Three years earlier, a lady named uh, Lauren Dirk, she was jogging in, in the uh, historical tour road. And she said she saw a man running about 30 yards away from her. She couldn't see him very clear, but she did see that he was running in the woods and not on a trail. She said it was starting to get kind of dark, and she didn't want to take any chances, so she decided to turn around and start going back towards her house. Just then, he jumped out in front of her about 20 feet away. She said he was wearing a long white shirt that seemed to kind of have a little bit of a glow to it. And then she said she noticed that she, he had no shoes on. So two similar stories. Oh, wow. So Jackie's body is not buried in that particular area, but a lot of people think that he's still there trying to please and earn the respect of his stepfather, Aww. George Washington. Bless his heart. So what do you think? Yeah, that's really interesting. So like I said, there's tons more stories oh and we'll gosh, eventually yeah. get to some more of them. Yeah. But that's what we got right now. That's good, show. babe. That's real good. Well, Tracy, we're going to take a uh, quick break. Okay. And then uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, some of the events that went on and get into some iTunes and stuff like that. So take a quick break from our sponsor. Tracy, yesterday we had our book signings in Lexington and Louisville. We put up a ton of pictures and mm -hmm. then we had a ton more pictures that we didn't put up yet. So, yeah. I mean, it's just like the it, it was packed, you know, basically. I mean, it was what was cool about it is it wouldn't like some 
you know, we're not like big authors or anything, so we're not going to have 600 people packed in there. That wouldn't a deal. We had 17, 18 people, but over three hours, that gave people a chance to be able to sit down and talk. And mm-hmm. we didn't have to just sign a book and here you go, get the hell out. No, you know, it was really nice. It was like literally we had six, seven, eight, nine people at one time just kind of mm-hmm. hanging out. And it was a big area, so everybody was spread out. Yeah. You know, and then, uh, you know, like I said, it was it was really cool. It was fun seeing everybody. Uh, big thank you to Holly for coming out. And giving us a picture of a, a I almost said a Winnebago, a, a Wendingo. <laughs> <laughs> she gave us a big picture of a camper. It was yeah. awesome. No, she gets, she, she, Holly is so talented mm-hmm. and she's a fantastic photographer. And, you know, so we, we appreciated her coming out there and doing that for us. Yeah, that was it was really great. For. It was really great seeing everybody. It was very exciting. And, uh, yeah. I mean, so many people, Andy and Mike mm-hmm. and, Mike Brown and mm-hmm. his beautiful wife. And, and then, of course, Tammy came out. Mm-hmm. Angela Aaron came. I mean, just more people. Billy and Amy and I can't even. Brondel. There were so many I people mean, I yeah, can't even was, name everybody. There was a lot. It was, it was, we really appreciate y'all took the time out to do that. And, I, and Holly had help from Jill yesterday, too. I mm-hmm. wanted to Jill out. Oh, they yeah. Were, we took some cool pictures. Yep. They tried to make me get on a bed and do some sensual poses and like, you know, my big payday from that will come eventually, and I'm not, I'm not just going to readily give that up uh, oh. immediately. So, you know, I don't know what Holly's intentions with those pictures were, but I'm not going to get screwed on this one. So, <laughs> but we had a great time. Next week, we are going to be in Hamilton, Ohio, which is a suburb of Cincy. Uh, so, if you're in the Cincinnati area, come see us. Yeah, please. We're going to be at the uh, Kroger Shopping Center at Rent Mart. And when you read the book, you'll actually see where Rent Mart comes into play here. So it's mm-hmm. a place where I used to work. And um, so they allowed us to do these book signings here, which was pretty cool. Yeah, it was really very nice. So, very nice. Address and stuff is on our website. Yeah. Hope to see you guys. We'd love to meet you. And, of course, you can get any of our merch. There's a big sale going on right now. Well, I think it's going on right now. But you get, like, uh, T-shirts for 13 bucks, And it's not just us. You can get T-shirts from, like, anybody on there. Oh, so, yeah. But go on through Hillbilly Horror Stories uh dot com click on that and if you buy something at any of the locations no matter what it is we get credit for it and we get paid for it so it's pretty cool one of the major reasons we made the switch yeah it's very nice very nice so do some christmas shopping you can get the book for a christmas present i'm just saying that might make a good present or a shirt or something else (laughs) or join patreon so all right that's all the hyping i'm doing for trying to sell stuff yeah tracy what do we got okay on itunes we have poo poo fighter which I want it may to, be the most unique one we've ever had. Yes. I would like to say, I did not know this, but the comment was, use white lily flour for the fluffiest biscuits. Yeah, that was the review. Who knew? <laughs> I like fluffy biscuits. Do we have a new sponsor? Does white lily flour now sponsor <laughs> the show? And our old friend Mojo Lobster, Bill Wilkins Ghost. Thank you guys for your reviews. They were awesome. We appreciate y'all so much, so try to keep them coming if you can. And our Patreons was Tonya of Cards and Millie and Brandy Luker. Thank you guys for your patronage and your support. We really, really, really appreciate y'all more than y'all ever know. Yeah, and I do want to say one last thing. If you've gotten the book, please go to Amazon and leave a review. That that helps us, you know, so much on there. On because it gets when when it gets a bunch of reviews, then it gets suggested to people who may not know it. Mm-hmm. And right now, the only people who really know about it are you guys. Mm-hmm. So, but luckily, there's a bunch of you guys. <laughs> so, Yay. so you know, like I said, please go to Amazon if you've bought it and you read it and you liked it. Please go to Amazon and leave a review. So, do it. 
I think uh, I think that's it for this week. Well, it's a beautiful day, and yep. we've been blessed with some beautiful days, and we hope that you guys have a beautiful, blessed week. All right. Thank we you. love y'all. Thank you. Bye.